Okay, I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to look at, we're going to continue through 2 Corinthians 1. We're going to flip it one part back to 1 Corinthians 18. I mean, 1 Kings 18. It was nice to get back into the rhythms of life this week. And uh, man, Peg and I appreciate, particularly PK and Jan Carlton, let us have their house in Granbury. So you can watch this beautiful sunset over the lake. And when you spend several hours in this cubicle, smaller than your deer blind, it was really nice to come home and be able to kind of get a breath and then go back to <clears throat> the top of the library. You know, when the Bible talks about quenching the Spirit, that is where it starts. It's right there at the beginning of the library at Southwestern Seminary. I thought that was funny, but apparently I've studied too much humor. When I turned in my prospectus, and that's what I've done, I've got about another year of work, but when I turned in my prospectus, my major professor, who was brutal, Dr. Allen, uh, gave it back to me, and he said, looks good, except I want you to do one thing. I want you to add a survey of humor from the patristics to the reformers, which is basically 100 A.D. all the way to 1500 A.D. So I said, sure, that won't be any problem at all. But the early church fathers are really a group of men uh, from about 100 to about 500 A.D. These guys, uh, you've got, like all Christian history, you've got some nutcases in here. You've got some really sharp people in here. But like a great deal of our theology comes out of these guys. The major church councils, a couple of them come through this period where we decided that there is a trinity one God in three persons, and that Jesus is both fully God, fully man. Now, there's a one particular guy named Tertullian. He lived from about 150 A.D. to about 240 A.D. He's real close then to the death of the Apostle John. Now, in referencing the passage that we're looking at this morning, look in verse 8. We don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, he doesn't mention it to us. He doesn't tell us what it is, but apparently they knew. And Tertullian says it was a reference point that he was looking at. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 32, he said, What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says that that is what the reference point is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And when Paul says he fought with a wild beast, there are two theories. One that is ridiculous is that it's a metaphor because it doesn't make sense. Inside 1 Corinthians 15, a passage about the resurrection of the dead. What happened to him in Ephesus, which is now, of course, in modern Turkey, what happened to him is what they did periodically to Christians, and it became more and more fun for the Romans, is they would take Christians and dress them up in wild animal skins, roll them into the arena, <coughs> and then uh, let dogs that they had starved for a period of time wild loose. And the dogs, of course, would smell the blood of the animal skins and would run out and begin to try to eat through the skin, to the person. So it is probable that in Ephesus, Paul went through that very experience. 
which fits the context when he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, pretty bad moment. Now, there are a couple things you learn from this. Number one, God saw what was happening to Paul. Wasn't something unusual. It's not like God was up there and an angel came to him and said, God looks like Paul's having a bad day. God saw exactly what was happening and obviously rescued him in some way from that moment. Matter of fact, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. Now, so God saw him. God got him through the moment. Didn't excuse him from the moment. And it doesn't have to mean wild animals. Because any affliction, here's how we're going to define affliction, okay? Here's a great definition for affliction. Anything you don't want in your life. There's affliction. If you want it, it's a blessing. If you don't want it, it's an affliction. He says any affliction, and he, he uses his because it, I don't think it gets much worse than animal skins in a Roman arena and wild dogs let loose. He said even that. God got us through the trial. He rescued us, and it made us dependent on him, not ourselves. See, so a couple of things here. God saw it, got them through it, rescued them from it, benefited them as a result of it. So no matter what affliction you go through, he sees it. He's not caught unawares. He knows exactly what's happening in your life. He'll get you through it. Okay? He'll benefit you in some way as a result of it. Let me just tell you something. God never wastes affliction in your life. There's never going to be a bad time in your life where you go, wow, just, there's no benefit to it. No, sir. God always benefits any affliction in our life in the way he chooses. In this particular thing, Paul realized, man, I, I, I've got to depend on God. I can't even face preaching the gospel without being absolutely sure of God raising me from the dead. So God saw him through it. He walked him through it. He benefited him as a result of it. So look at the next verse. Bad news, good news. Ten. <clears throat> he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So here's the bad news. Paul said, I know there's other bad things coming. So here's, here's the bad news, okay? Until you die, you're going to have different afflictions. And the problem is we don't have any idea when they're coming. So you're going to have different afflictions, right? But he says, now listen, he says, God will deliver us through the affliction. Now, so here it is. The whole tenor of the text. Even if it means 
I face <coughs> being wrapped in animal skins in a Roman arena and wild dogs set loose on me, even if that's what it means. If it's not the day <coughs> he's ordained for me to die, he sees it, he walks me through it, he pulls me out of it, and he does something beneficial in my life because of it. Now, so, <clears throat> now, here it is. Now listen to me carefully today. So, he is sufficient what I face. Is that correct? Okay, have I been gone that long? This is not a Bible school question. Is that correct? Absolutely. He alone is sufficient. So if all I have is Christ, no community in my life, if all I have is Christ, I'm okay, right? Just one yes is fine. Thank you very much, though. It's always you, isn't it? I missed you, sort of. So here we go. Now watch what he says in verse 11. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, if at the end of the day, God's sufficient, he's all that I need, why do I have to have you pray for me? And that is what he says. It almost seems contradictory. He says God is sufficient. He walks us through it. He pulls us out. He's so big he can get you through animal skin moments. He is incredible. He is sufficient. For no matter what you face, he's all you need. But you also must help us by prayer. Why do I need your prayer if Jesus Christ is all I need? Remember the verses we read last week? He talks about me being comforted by God. But then I turn around, I take that comfort, and I give it to the community of believers in which I live. So why do I need your prayers? Now, walk with me. Jesus, last night of his life, he takes his disciples and he walks them from the upper room <clears throat> to the Garden of Gethsemane. When he gets them there, he does an unusual thing, and that all this fits what you need. He does an unusual thing. He's got 11 guys with him, right, because Judas is on the way to get the chief priests and the elders, and they're going to come get him. But he's got a little time. So he's got 11 guys. 
Now, walk with me through this whole deal. He takes eight of them. He does not request prayer for them. He takes eight of them, and he sits them down over here, and he says, hang loose. I'll be back. He takes three guys, Peter, James, John. He walks them a little ways, and he stops. He says, I need you guys to pray for me. Now, there are only two logical reasons why Jesus would request prayer. Oh, and by the way, we're talking a man who's perfect. His relationship with the Father is absolute. I understand us needing prayer, but not really Jesus. But he gets these guys and he says, I need you to pray. Now, there are only two logical reasons. One, he's giving them some busy work. I think we're going to chunk that one out. Or, even though he's going to be in complete reliance on the Father, even though that's true, he needs their prayer life. And he chooses the three guys that he is the closest to. Remember, they're with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're with him and Jairus' daughter's raised. None of the others are. <clears throat> we know John's one of the ones the Bible says Jesus loved. doesn't mean he loved him more than everybody. It meant John allowed him to love him more than everybody. These three guys are in a unique, close relationship with Jesus. As a matter of fact, when Jesus confronts Peter, he, they, they discuss the issue of being friends after Peter's rejection. So, he takes three friends, the closest three he's got, ignores the eight, takes these three, sits them down, and says, pray for me. He goes and he prays. Now, here's what we discover. We watch in Jesus a couple things happen. He's struggling. Remember, he says, Father, I don't want to drink this cup. Now, I'll do what you want, but this cup is intense. Comes back, wakes him up. Hey, I need you to pray. Obviously, he senses they're not, and they're sound asleep. Goes back, does it again. Goes back, does it again. Third time, right? <coughs> sweat, uh, capillaries in his sweat glands burst, and as he sweats, blood begins to drip down his body. I mean, the emotional stress is unbelievable. When he finishes, <clears throat> comes back and says, all right, let's get up. Let's go ahead and wake up. Let's go. Now, does he win in Gethsemane? Yes. Matter of fact, that's really where the battle is. Payments on the cross, but the battle's in Gethsemane. He wins because of his relationship with the Father. So if he's going to win, <clears throat> why does he need them to pray? Had they 
done what he said. Had they knelt, grabbed each other and said, Lord, walk our master through these moments. Had they prayed, maybe. Wouldn't have taken him three times. Maybe. Their prayer would have reduced the stress enough that his capillaries would not have burst and he wouldn't have a blood-soaked garment on him when he met them the third time. He's going to win because of his father. You're going to win because of Jesus. Their prayers, though, could have softened the blow of the moment. But because they didn't pray, he faced the deepest intensity in the world. He still wins, but the intensity could have been mitigated. It's the only reason he would have asked them to pray. It's either busy work or their prayers would have mitigated the intensity of the pressure that he went through. And so, if I face an affliction, can I make it in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. If you I gather people and they pray for me. Does it shorten the intensity? Does it make it easier to get through the affliction? Absolutely it does. Now, so when you hit an affliction, you hit trouble. Let's take 1 John 5, let's take Jesus in Gethsemane, and let's do this. I don't care if you pop whatever you're facing on Facebook, that's fine, you do whatever you want to, but you get the people in your life that love you the most. You pull two or three of those into your circle and you let them know exactly what it is you're facing and you ask them to pray on your behalf. Now, so I don't think you get 25 people. Jesus had 11 guys. He picked three. I think you pick two or three people that absolutely love you and that will pray for you. And you tell them what you're facing. Now, if they don't pray, are you going to win? Absolutely. But you want to make this thing as easy as it can be. Now, <clears throat> if you're one of the three, and he calls on you to pray, and here's what you do. You're going to pray 1 John 5. It says we have to pray God's will in every circumstance. So walk with me here. 
we're going to pray God's will. So if, if somebody comes to you and says, man, I, 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 here's my affliction, I want you to pray for me. Here's what you're going to do. Based on 1 John 5, you're going to look at 2 Corinthians, and you're going to say, okay, I know two things I can pray. God, get them through the trial as quickly as possible. Number two, let a benefit be maximized in their life when it's over. I can pray those two things. Because that's the will of God. That's what I see in 2 Corinthians 1. So I can absolutely pray those two things. When a brother or sister comes to me, here's the affliction, I'm going to pray those two things. God, get them through the trial as quickly as possible, and whatever benefit comes out, intensify it, maximize it in their life. Now, if somebody asks you to pray, don't be the disciple. Let me just give you one little hint here. Pick a time. Same time every day. Put an alarm on your watch or on your phone or whatever. When the alarm goes off, you remember, okay. Because we all have a tendency. I know in my own life, I have a tendency, somebody says pray, and I go, yeah, great. And next thing I know, I've caught up in 47 things, and then two days later, I go, oh, yeah. no. Put an alarm. When that alarm goes off, you find some place quiet. If you have to excuse yourself from your friends, you find some place. You get in there and you pray, God. Get them through this as quickly as you can. Maximize the benefit. Ease the stress. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen if you do that. And we talked about this a long while back. First John 5, I have to pray as well. I can't pray what I want. I can't even pray what they want. As I pray, every day, 5 o'clock alarm goes off, every day as I pray. What I know biblically to pray, now listen to me. Spirit of God will begin to speak to you other things to pray for, for them in the midst of this moment. And when he does... You breathe those things to the Father. You say, well, <clears throat> how's important, how really important is it that I pray? I want you to listen to 1 Kings 18, 41. It's mentioned in James 5. Elijah <clears throat> said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. There's a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. If he bows himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees, what is he doing? He's praying. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. He said, go again seven times. So here's what he does. He bows, he's praying. If I get way down, you'll have to pray for me to get up. So he's bowing, and he's praying. He looks up at his servant and says, see anything? The servant goes, we'll walk over to the other side of Mount Carmel, probably looking down in Megiddo Valley, and he goes, no, nah, I don't see anything. 
comes back, says, okay. He kneels again, and he prays again. And he finishes praying, says, go look. He goes, look, you see anything? No. He prays seven times. And then finally, his servant says, I see a cloud. We're all just about the size of a hand. He said, we're good. Let's go. Now, here's my question to you. If he had prayed five times, would they have seen the rain? No. He prayed seven times. And he prayed until God answered what he told him to pray. So when do you quit for your brother in Christ? When either God tells you to quit or you pray until you see God's answer in his life. Again, we need community for comfort. We need community for prayer life. Is Jesus enough? Absolutely. What does my prayer do? It makes it softer and easier when I go through the affliction. You don't get 37 people. You want to put it on Facebook, that's your business. I don't care. But that's not what Jesus did. He held a late here. He brought three here. He had them pray. They failed. He won, but with intense duress. We are a society, and I fear, unfortunately, the church embraces this as well. We are a community of Christians who spend an intense amount of money on entertainment and psychological therapy. And I wonder at times if the reason we spend so much money on both those it's because we don't ease the intensity of life by a community of prayer life that is effective and powerful in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this church because <clears throat> the numerous times they bathed me in prayer over so many things. They've eased the stress and the duress in my life on more than one occasion. Father, when somebody, just let us know two things today. When we face an intense affliction, or any kind of affliction, let us choose the right people Father, if someone chooses us, let us do it well, let us do it right. I'm amazed and grateful that you allow us to have enough access to you that our speech with you can change what happens in this world. That is staggering. But we praise you and we thank you. 
in Jesus Christ's name. With your heads bowed, eyes closed. You never met Jesus? Staff and I are here. You don't have to join this church. We don't want your money. But we will be glad to share with you how to find Jesus Christ. God's calling you to be a part of this fellowship as he speaks to your heart this morning. You come.